there's so little in life that you can't train for and discipline yourself to do and that if you if you want something bad enough that you'll put in the time and the prioritize it just like in in business i mean there's no shortcut to the finish line like right. you and even once you're to the finish line at least at the race you're at the finish line but in business there really isn't a finish line you right. just you're just you just continue to train Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into The Fort. I am pumped to have Carrie Crow, the co-founder and CEO of Melt Ice Cream here in Fort Worth, Texas on the show with me. This is one of the coolest episodes. Carrie is unbelievably scrappy and her story of getting this business started is the entrepreneur story of all entrepreneur stories. From bartering picture services to watching YouTube videos on how to patch sheetrock to traveling all over the country meeting with ice cream shop owners to learn and pick their brain before starting her own. Melt has grown tremendously in Fort Worth and has now expanded over to Dallas. We also switch topics and talk about Carrie's 100-mile race that she ran up in Colorado. Carrie's the total package. I am really excited to have this conversation with her. Carrie's been a big inspiration to me. Gotten to know Carrie over the last four or five years. I'll tell you today about something you told me in our first meeting that we ended up doing here that I think you know. And she has also run a hundred mile race, which is one of the most impressive things I could think to do because I've never run more than four or five miles. So thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Absolutely. Would you start by telling us um, how the idea of Melt came to be? Yes. Um, so living in Texas, it is the hottest place on earth. Um, and we couldn't find good ice cream in um, Fort Worth. Um, so there was a custard shop, but there wasn't any homemade, really good ice cream. And I feel like anybody who lives in a place um, this hot needs good ice cream. So um, we really just, I was kind of unsettled in my career. I was looking for something different and started exploring ice cream and um, traveled all over the country um, visiting ice cream shops, hard jobs, somebody's got to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, my previous career was in photojournalism, so I would sit and anybody that was willing to talk to me, um, let me interview them kind of on the spot, their owners, their managers, anything I could learn from them, I would take and take notes and internalize it and think about how I could bring that experience to Fort Worth and make it a truly unique Fort Worth experience. And so um, after that trip, I um, went out and um, had to learn how to make ice cream. And um, nobody really wanted to let me learn from them. It's kind of a secretive um, industry. And I found this couple on the back 
corner of the internet that let me come and um, stay. I, I stayed in a hostel for a few weeks in wow. um, Ohio, and I learned to make ice cream from this really sweet couple. And they have an ice cream shop called Mason's Creamery in Cleveland, Ohio, and they um, were very generous and let me just ask them a million questions and learn from them. And then I came back and um, kind of accidentally signed a lease before I had any funding or knew what I was doing, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of the rest is history. Were you looking to start a business or were you looking to solve a problem, which was I needed ice cream in the hot summer? I think I was looking to do something um, that would be impactful to not just mm, a problem that I had, but to other people. So uh, maybe a little bit of both. But had you was it in your blood that you were going to start a business one day? I had always worked for myself, so I had done some freelance jobs, but I had owned my own um, business previous, and so I really could never picture myself working for somebody else, yeah. whether I, I knew it or could admit it or not. So I, I, I knew I was created to do something other than what I was doing. I right. just didn't know what it was until ice cream kind of fit the bill. Yeah. I've done almost 20 of these episodes, and this is the first time somebody has talked about a trip, like a research trip that they took. Did did somebody give you like a playbook for how to have this trip, or was it just, I'm going to go out and and seek out places that I'm inspired by and just ask a million questions and see where it takes me? Um, I'm kind of a life learner. Um, Nobody made a playbook. Um, I... You know, my, my husband really encouraged me to do it, and um, he even, like, rented me a car because he didn't think my car was safe enough to drive <laughs> across the country. And um, so I just plotted ice cream shops out. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is as I was on my journey and as I was learning and um, meeting people, um, I would be, you know, I remember being in Tennessee and getting a phone call from a guy in Atlanta that wanted to connect me with another ice cream shop owner. and. Um, it just kind of organically, like people learned about the journey and would let me kind of learn from people they knew. That's awesome. Was there ever a moment on that trip after meeting with lots of ice cream shops that you thought maybe I'm, I'm not going to start one or did it just keep getting better and better and, and it kept building? I think, um, no, that never happened. I think the, the beauty of being an entrepreneur is the great naivety that comes with it yeah. and um, the excitement and of, of what you're doing kind of overwhelms and diminishes any of that fear in the moment. And I think those moments come later. Yeah. Have you taught anybody how to make ice cream? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, if, if somebody is from out of state, I'm not going to teach my neighbor, you know, yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. teach somebody that wants to open an ice cream <laughs> shop here. But um, we, we have a full kitchen team now and um, we have just a really great group of people that know how to make ice cream and, um, you know, I'm very open and I have friends in different places of the country that will call me and ask me questions and the same thing, like just open doors. It doesn't have to be as secretive as, you know, certain people think it is, but I think there's certain trade secrets that you do have to keep close, um, just because you've created something unique and you want to protect that. Yep. I know one of the trade secrets is just keep it cold. Yeah, yeah, frozen. That's, That's important. Frozen, That's frozen. Important. Yeah. How long from um, the idea before that trip started to the day you signed that lease? Like, how long was that journey? Um, probably over, probably over twelve months. Okay. Yeah. So this was just building and building and building. Yeah, yeah. But we probably didn't even open our doors until another 
you know, six or seven or eight months after that. Yeah. Will you give me a little insight into what signing that lease in that, that next six months? Once you sign the lease, you're like, oh shit, this has to happen. Yeah. Here we go. You kind of are, you jump off a cliff without a, a parachute and you kind of make up things on your way down. Mm-hmm. So I, again, great naivety. I did got a loan for our house. Surely I can get a loan for a business. <laughs> um, and went to probably six or seven different banks and um, got the same answer over and over again. Um, you have never worked in the food industry. Um, you have no track record of creating a business. Um, we can't give you a loan. And so um, I had already, you know, gotten quotes for construction. I hired architects and, you know, dreamed up this great ice cream shop. Um, and I had a, I, what I felt like was an ironclad business plan. I had, you know, a 60-day business plan with financials. And my husband was an economics major. So he just, like, handed me his college textbooks. And I went to town writing a business plan. So I thought that it was kind of a surefire thing that somebody would give me money. Um, but they did it, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm thankful for it now. And so I, I was able to get like a $10,000 SBA loan. Mm-hmm. And then I sold as much of my photography equipment as I could, and I um, bartered as much as I could. So um, I would barter my photography skills for somebody to go pick up something off a tra- Craigslist. And yeah. um, I would watch YouTube videos on how to uh, patch sheetrock. And um, we would talk friends into you know, painting and eating pizza and drinking beer on date nights. And um, we just kind of patched it all together to make it happen. Um, And I'm really grateful um, because we didn't spend any money that we couldn't afford to spend. And so we slowly added and made the shop better as um, as the cash flow came in. I love that. You are you are the scrappiest entrepreneur that's been on the show today. I'm still pretty scrappy. That is awesome. <laughs> you need to write a book on just the the little the bartering, like how to how to get each nickel along the way to keep going. Um, well, that was a question. I think you kind of answered it. You really didn't raise money from outside people. You sold a bunch of your stuff. I'm assuming your prior business was a photography business. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, piece it together. You got a loan. Before you signed the lease, um, and I've had this question, how uh, did you already know like the flavors and everything you were going to do, or did you start developing ice cream and flavors after the lease, or did you know this is what I'm going to do? Um, I really had no clue. Um, I had I, I knew I wanted to make great ice cream, and I had lots and lots of ideas. Um, I had always kind of been creative in the kitchen, and I'd been making ice cream on a really small scale. Um, just at home and for my neighbors and my friends, but really had to just kind of hone that in the closer we got to opening and what was realistic and what made sense and what didn't. How did you know if you uh, would have been spending money on the wrong things? Um, I mean, I think a lot of that comes from making mistakes. I mean, I did spend money on some wrong things. I bought, um, I bought equipment at auction. And I think if you talk to anybody in the restaurant industry, they'll tell you what you can buy at auction and what you can't buy at auction. We still buy equipment at auction. Um, but you don't buy used freezer equipment. You don't buy used refrigerators. And two weeks after we opened, I had two freezers that were total duds. Um, why don't you buy that? Cause it, just because the lifespan of a compressor and a freezer isn't, I mean, it's just not worth buying it used because you don't know how long it's been there. And that's the most expensive part of a freezer is <laughs> their compressors. Um, 
See, there's that's one of those things. The only way to learn to not buy a used freezer is to buy a used freezer. Or to ask the right question from somebody to tell you that. So you you get started. How did you how did you begin to curate your palette of like what the flavors were gonna be? Were these the different flavors you loved along your journey? Or and, and how many how many ice cream flavors does an ice cream shop need to have to kind of start? Yeah, I think that's um, the beauty of being able to create your own space. And my goal was that, you know, we had a classic offering, um, but then we also pushed the needle on creativity a little bit so that we're um, not just an ice cream shop in Fort Worth, but that we're encouraging people to expand their palates and um, just kind of their creativity in their taste buds. And so I knew we would have a, a classic flavors and, you know, originally – I think we changed our flavors every month or every few weeks, and now we change them every um, six weeks. So we keep six flavors on our menu year-round, and then four of them rotate every six weeks. And originally, um, I mean, we just kind of had to learn what that progression was. And that's actually, from an inventory standpoint and from a cash flow standpoint, that's actually very difficult to to plan um, if you're changing your flavors every six weeks and so especially with the seasonality of ice cream but um, we've found it's just a really fun way to introduce new things to our customers and get people excited about what we're doing and to take their suggestions and be able to incorporate those into what we're doing and um, just to be able to experiment and try new things to keep um, just the kind of creativity flowing. That is one of the most um, and for people that already know Carrie but for me, it, you have done an incredible job of engaging your customer and your community. The color yellow, like if I see the color yellow, I think of you. How did they help shape like the early days? Were there things that happened early on that just by observing what they were doing that maybe changed that business plan? Because as we know, business plans, they're good until the day after you start the business and then right. shit starts happening. Yeah. Um, you know, we painted that building yellow because I would say that it was the color. Um, and and just so anybody who's listening knows, we've picked up and moved our shop. So originally we opened on um, Rosedale Avenue and there was it was kind of a, a desert in, in terms of like there were no food businesses around us. And we only had five parking spots and we were next to an auto mechanic shop and like a convenience store that you would buy cigarettes and fried chicken at mm-hmm. um and so we originally painted that building bright yellow um for two reasons one it was kind of the color of like flesh like it was just it just didn't stand <laughs> out whatsoever at all and if we were going to be this destination place on this street we really needed to make a statement and but the other reason is yellow represents happiness yep. um and kind of the foundation of our company and our um vision is um, to be a place of happiness. So um, that's kind of why we chose the color yellow. Is yeah. that, did I answer your question? That does. Okay. Yeah. Um, but going into it, it's not like yellow was like this big part of the plan. It just kind of happened along the way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And now it's become kind of your signature. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a part of who we are now. So you painted the building yellow. When did you hire your first employee? So, um, I really had no experience managing people. Um, and and still, I think that's the biggest thing that I continue to learn about. But 
we hired, I've hired probably the, the week before, maybe two weeks before I hired two people and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that would be plenty. I thought, you know, me and two people and we'll split up the shifts. And I thought we'll close it in December and we'll reopen after Valentine's. I'll have vaca- I'll have vacation. Like, <laughs> teachers get the summer off. I'll have the winter off. Um, and surely it's just naive. Um, hired two people. And then within two weeks, that first day of opening, we were just, I mean, we had a line out the door. We ran out of ice cream almost by the end of the night. And it was like, whoa, this is really a thing that yeah. people want. Um, and so within two weeks, I hired a team of seven more people um, and had to get give myself a really quick just learning experience in how to manage people. Yep. And take back all your vacation days. Yeah. <laughs> what did uh, What did like a day look like when it was just you for those first six months? You're developing you're building out the building, you're figuring out your process that you're going to, I mean, what did like a typical day look like? Um, well, again, I'd never worked in food service, so I didn't even know that, um, man, this is really taking me back, but I didn't even know that delivery services existed. So I didn't know that people would bring you your supplies. And so (laughs) I would drive, you know, I would make a to-do list and I would drive to, you know, Costco and Restaurant Depot and all these places that I would need to get to to buy my um, um, food products. Mm-hmm. So that and, – and Costco had all this organic fruit or if or, – or the I would drive to a farm to pick up fruit from a farmer um, <laughs> before I realized that, like, you could actually um, – hire these services that would actually deliver them to you, which is what all restaurants do. Right. Um, I just did everything the hard way. So – I would wake up extremely early and I would have a notebook by my bed because I would wake up in the middle of the night and remember something. And then I would time everything out based on when everything opened. And then I would get to the shop and I would open the shop and I would start making ice cream. And cause at the time I made everything in our kitchen as well. And I would start making that until one of my employees got there. And then when the busy hours came, I would help my employees serve our customers and check people out at the cash register. And I would have to balance what I was cooking in the kitchen or what I was ice creams I was spinning. And then, um, I wouldn't leave until closing time and everything was cleaned up. And the only place that was open, um, was bearded lady. (laughs) And so I could go and get a burger and a beer at bearded lady and like, think about what I was going to have to do the next day. Yeah. I love it. You were kind of a ice cream logistics company early on. Yeah. Um, did somebody teach you along the way or was this just learned by trial and error, how to delight customers and treat them well? You know, I think that's something that's always been important, um, to me and I'm, I'm a big reader. And so, um, and I grew up going to, not a lot of restaurants as a kid. So when we would go, it was really special. Um, and I loved, you know, I loved that the way that the employees at Chick-fil-A made you feel. And I'm from Georgia. So there's a lot of, um, Chick-fil-A love in Georgia. Oh yeah. Um, and so I, I always thought that, you know, they just did this standout job. And so I read a lot of Trick Cathy's books and then I've let, I've read a lot of Walt Disney's books and just the way that they treat people and, um, the way they teach their employees to treat people, I think is really important. But I mean, I think to keep a customer happy, you make them feel good. And, um, so one of our goals is to be the best five minutes of somebody's day and kind of our mission behind Mel is that we believe, 
um, we serve happy ice cream and we believe that treats can change your day and your day can change the world. And that's such a grand statement, but we really believe like if somebody is having a bad day or a hard day, or, um, they're coming into our shop and they're choosing to put their money in our cash register, we want them to feel incredible. We want them to feel like they're having a really great experience. And at the end of the day, we make amazing ice cream yes but you remember how people make you feel and so if they can have this great experience then what kind of ripple effect can they have on their community if they had a really great experience in our shop so you're a badass (laughs) this this just keeps building i tell every manager at the chick-fil-a i go out of my way to tell them y'all are the best in the business at what you do Mm -hmm. and i read a headline not too long ago in the news and it seems so simple it was something along the lines of Chick-fil-A does so well because they say please and thank you. Like mm-hmm. it's not rocket science. Yeah. Um, if you were telling someone that is starting their own business on service, is there something, is there like something that comes to mind of if you just do these things, you will delight your customers? Is it is it that simple? Is it as simple as please and thank you? I wish it was that simple. Yeah. Um, I think it's more complex than that because when you employ people and you hand over your business to people, you have to trust them. And so, um, you know, I employ a lot of high schoolers and a lot of teenagers and sometimes it's their first job and, um, maybe they don't know or understand that what kind of effect their mood has on somebody. And Mm -hmm. so maybe they had a bad day at school or, so I think it, as, as I would love to distill it down as simple as that, I think it's much more complex than the fact that how do I train an employee of, of setting the expectation really high? And for us, I think it takes a constant coaching and setting an example and an expectation of what it's like to have a job and what it means to serve the public and what it and how to continually do that and how we don't know all the answers, but we're always working on improving. Right. How do, how do you train? Do you, if, if I go get a job with you, um, is there weeks to build up before you'll put me out on the front line? So we actually have worked a lot on our training. Um, one of my favorite um, people in the restaurant business is Ari Weizen, Weizenbing. I can't say his last name. Forgive mm-hmm. me. Sorry, Ari. Um <laughs> He has a um, restaurant group out of um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm-hmm. um, and it started as a Jewish deli. And he, they just are exceptional at everything they do. And he's written a number of books, um, but we've adopted a lot of his philosophies. So our employees um, go through an orientation that Mark and I teach. So every other week we offer an orientation class and um, we it gives us the opportunity i mean we have um 50 employees now and so we can't be as hands-on with everybody as we'd like to be so everybody comes through this orientation and we get to tell them the story of how we started melt and why we started melt and what their place is in our business and and why we think it's so important that they're a part of it and really just gives them an opportunity to know us and us get to know them and really kind of share the vision of why we believe in customer service and why we believe in um, serving each other. And so that's the the first part of our training is that orientation class. And how long does that take? An hour. Okay. And do they go through it once or multiple times or people come? Just when they start. Yep. 
just when they start. And, um, and then we have, it's called a passport and it's our training book. Our passport has everything that they need to learn. And then we challenge them that it is their job to, to get everything learned. Um, and so they have to get, um, each item initialed by, um, a shift lead. Um, which is what we call our key holders at Malt. And, um, and so if they haven't learned something off their, their checklist, it's not just one person's responsibility. We really put the responsibility on the employee and, um, and we're trying to teach them that to take ownership of their life and take ownership of what's before them. And um, that way it's not just on, you know, my manager to train everybody, but we're really giving that that person that we're employing the opportunity to learn as much as they can themselves. Does that I'm make an, sense? I'm going to guess that wasn't part of the business plan. <laughs> no, it was not a part of business plan. You clearly are observant. You're clearly looking for best practices and not only do you look for them, but you, you take them really seriously. It take, I think I've talked about this. The, the toughest part about small business is the resources to train and train and teach. Do your people, um, if they're taking on a different role, like can any role go through that orientation or is there different learning experiences depending on the job? We want everybody who works a part of our organization, whether they're a leader or a scooper or a shift lead, to all go through that orientation. Do you have a favorite interview question? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I like to ask people if I put their closest friends in a room without them, what their friends would say about them and just kind of watch their body language and their facial expressions and see what they have to say. Again, we hire a lot of really young um, students and, and, and high schoolers and college students. And so, I mean, it's a great honor, but we are teaching kids how to have a job for the first time. And we are we are their first step into the workforce. So we also have that opportunity to teach teach them how to stand up for themselves and how to have a voice. And um, But one of the questions I like to ask those students too is like, well, if we asked, if I called your teacher right now, what would she say? What kind of student would she say? And you know, like usually they're pretty honest. Yeah, I didn't do my homework last night or I got an A on my test, one of the others. <laughs> how many locations do you have open now? So we have two full-fledged stores, um, one on Magnolia Avenue in Fort Worth and one in Bishop Arts in Oak Cliff. Um, and then we just launched an ice cream push cart in Sundance Plaza last week. And then we're working on two more locations. And you have a, you're kind of, I'll call it the manufacturing, the ice cream manufacturing yeah, spot yeah. as well. So a year ago we opened, I guess I left out that part of our journey, but a year ago we opened, we call it the Joy Factory um, and it's kind of like our headquarters, offices, and a kitchen. So when we opened originally on Rosedale, um, we opened in a 750-square-foot space um, ice cream shop. And my kitchen was the size maybe of this table, maybe a little bigger. It was 98 square feet. And so you could literally be standing. Um, you could stretch out your arms, and you could be standing in front of the ice cream machine, and you could be stirring something on the stove, and you could reach back and touch the refrigerator, and you could reach to the left, and you could touch the sinks. Um, we like literally couldn't have two people in there at one time. Somebody wow. would have to stand off to the side or outside of the room. And so we had the opportunity a year and a half in to pick up our shop and move it, and. Um, 
you know, originally I said, no way, nobody picks up their flagship store and moves it. That's just silly. There's no way we should do this. And my husband really, um, really persuaded me and really pushed me and, and told me he thought it was a really good move for us. And he showed me, you know, his projections of the numbers. He's a very detail oriented guy. Um, and um, so I conceded and said, okay, let's do it as, as long as we get a bigger kitchen. And so in the new space um, on Magnolia, we have, it's 900 square feet, a little over plus a patio. And in our kitchen, we have 350 square feet and we built a walk-in freezer. And so um, one of the, the big issues we had on, on our first location is when somebody would come to our door um, on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon, we would be run, we'd run out of ice cream. Um, we would go through so much we couldn't keep up with production, and so it really didn't align with our mission of serving happiness. Because if right. you have a little girl and you promised her ice cream, and you get to the front door of the ice cream shop and they have to turn you away, like you have a you have a sour experience because they ran out of product, and so um, we never wanted that to happen again. So when we moved to Magnolia, um, we we increased our kitchen um, space three threefold, and so I thought our freezer space um, was also increased. And um, we thought, you know, we would. My husband projected we would do a twenty percent increase in sales, and within six weeks, we were doing a seventy percent increase. And wow. um, automatically, it was like, well, we're at capacity again, um, and we didn't anticipate being at capacity so fast. And so then we started looking for, okay, so. We'll, how do we plan for the future so that we don't have this problem again? And um, how do we do that right while serving our customers well and serving the team that has come on board with us really well and giving opportunities for our team to grow what makes the most sense? And there's kind of two models in fast casual world. You either take what you're doing and you replicate it with the kitchen intact or you move to kind of a commissary model, which is the model we chose. And so we built a kitchen that's 3,000 square feet, and that allows us to produce um, a lot of ice cream and um, keep consistency and quality intact, and also gives us, you know, opportunities like economy of scale, um, just because we have the space. So we chose that, and so we started working on um, finding a space, and um, we landed with the OB Macaroni factory and just really loved the history of the place. It was a pasta factory for 100 years. And just to be a part of a building that has a story of longevity in the food industry it just felt really right for us. And yeah. so it's been a really good move. Susan and Jessica have done a great job of bringing buildings back to, to life. They have, yeah. Was there ever a decision along the way and maybe – this is unique to the ice cream business where you would just use a co-packer and not manufacture things yourself? Yeah, I actually had um, a family member ask me why we wouldn't do that. Um, I just think you lose so much of your identity in that and, and that you, you can't be as, I mean, I, I have this, the beautiful part of what we do is like we can make and test an ice cream and take it directly to our customer and let them taste it. And you can't do that with a co-packer. You can't, can't create a culture around innovation with a co-packer and um, we we get to test things all the time we get to make and create products that I mean is it appealing that it sounds easier yeah it does um, but it's just it it just isn't the right fit for us do you all have a like a goal of creating new flavors and innovations like a certain amount a year or just we're just going to tinker and when one's right we're going to bring it to our customer well we're on a pretty good 
rotation schedule now. So we, my kitchen um, manager um, has been with us for almost four years now. And so we take um, time every year and we sit down and we kind of, we have ideas all year long from my travels or from her books or from her travels or from, you know, a, I mean, maybe I listened to a podcast with David Chang and I got inspired by something and we'll take all of those di- ideas and distill them out, down and um, we'll look at our history from the year before um, and um, my husband being as detailed as he is gives us a, an analytical view of our sales of what was the best sellers of those rotational flavors and what wasn't what was a bust and we'll take that and we'll think should we bring a flavor back um, and then what fun and new and exciting things can we do and produce for our customers so we do change our flavors every six weeks but we're constantly testing new products for the Fort Worth Food and Wine Festival we launched a um, push pop we call it a happy pop um, do you remember the Flintstone push mm-hmm. pops as a oh, kid? Yeah. And so it was just really In the tube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just a really fun, um, memorable thing to be able to pass out at the festival, and it went off really well. And so that might be something that becomes a part of our menu or a part of our catering menu. Um, but it was just really fun to be able to see people kind of get delighted and remember their, be nostalgic about their childhood, and say, you know, I mean, just almost every person we handed that to's face lit up and would tell us a story about going to the ice cream truck when they were a kid. Yeah. What is the the number one selling flavor at Melt? Chocolate. Chocolate, just mm-hmm. straight chocolate. Which is the number one flavor in the nation. What's the number one like topping that people put on? Um, you know, I would have to go look at our sales. I would guess sprinkles, yeah. but it's probably chocolate. You mentioned um, throughout your story, it sounds like you decided to hire your husband at, at some point along <laughs> the way. What, um, what's that been like, and and when? How did how did you get to a point where it made sense for him to to join the ship full time? I don't know if it ever makes sense for a couple to. <laughs> <laughs> You're still the verdict's still out. <laughs> well, I mean, I just it's a risky endeavor. I mean, when you walk away from a full time job, but. Um, I wouldn't say I hired him. (laughs) He um, he has a a, just an immense skill set, and he worked in corporate finance as a a financial analyst. And um, you know, he was already coming to the shop every night and helping, and every weekend. And um, I was kind of at a place where I didn't know um, I needed help. beyond just employees Mm -hmm. um and so it just made sense and he was working 70 80 hour weeks in the corporate world and it was like if i'm gonna work this hard i'm gonna work it work for for something that i'm really proud of and um something that i own and um because i think it's a it's a different deal when you work that hard for somebody else and um you make those sacrifices for somebody else but when you're making that sacrifice for something you believe in and for the city you believe in and you can see the tangible impacts it's just a little bit different um but it's definitely you know a a challenge at times but i mean i think we we've now been working together for almost three years it was it was two years in when he decided to leave his job and we have chosen our roles and um when we stay in our lane and stay in our roles um we work really well together um now as an entrepreneur you wear a million different hats and so that's not always possible but um that's what we found have has worked for us that's awesome so back to our first meeting i remember having coffee at montgomery plaza and you told me about a book called traction 
and I bought it and it actually sat on my desk for like six months and I, I read a chapter and then I think we chatted again and you mentioned something about a level 10 meeting and I was like, oh shit, I haven't really read it. I need to, <laughs> I was kind of faking it. I skimmed it, blah, blah, blah. So we, we got on to EOS. Uh, we have been for a while. Are you still on EOS? Yes. And in a, in a quick summary, like what is it to you and how impactful has it been? And for a small business owner that might be looking for a, a, an outlet for a process, um, what's it done for you? It's given us structure. I think it's given us legs. I don't, and you know, I don't, again, I didn't come from working and I had been a waitress, but I didn't come from working in a n number of restaurants. So I didn't know how um, restaurants performed on a um, kind of management level um, and, and talked about numbers and things like that. So um, we, we use it on a weekly basis. We have meetings with our team leaders and we all come together and we all sit down and we go, we use that meeting structure on a weekly basis and everybody brings um, their numbers to the scorecard and everybody has to say those out loud and they're held accountable to those numbers and we take that very seriously. Now we've tweaked a few things about it to make yeah. it work for our, our organization. Um, but it's become a really safe place where our team knows they can work um, talk about the problems and the issues. So every week we know we're working towards a better melt ice creams. And yeah. I think it's just given us um, the right structure to be able to have those conversations and work towards those goals and everybody feel like they're a part of a business and that they can see that the, the difference in that. So I think for our, our, our team leads that, that come and are a part of us and that have worked at other restaurants, they'll typically say in the first month, like I've never worked somewhere that has these conversations. Um, and I think it's, I, w I want everybody that leaves melt, um, to walk away with having learned something or, um, be able to take those, that skill set to the next job that they have and perform. And so I think if we can teach them like these are, this is the ethical way that we've chosen to run this business and that you get to be a part of, then that's a, another tool in their tool belt that they get to take with them in their, their next job or their next career. Yeah. One thing I wish I was better at, um, I'm a go, 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 grow, grow, grow. And um, in all of our conversations, you've always been really intentional about, you have this like calmness about just being patient and getting it right and just getting each thing right and being um, unbelievably kind of bought into what you're doing to where I remember first asking you, like, are you going to, if I had started a store, the next thing I would have been thinking was like, well, when am I going to open the second? And you were like, I just want to get one so dialed in that as we grow, it's easier. Um, you're now at two stores. You have your commissary. What, what are like, what would be like the five year growth plan? Obviously you want to open more. What's, what's your like big mission and, and goal here long-term? Is it to grow a huge ice cream company? I think it's to give you a run for your money with that little ice cream brand you're a part of. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I mean, our, our, our goal in the next few years is to grow more of these stores at just a handful, but then to be able to go deeper with our customers and create more loyalty. Like we want to be um, the DFW ice cream brand that you take your kids to have memories at that, um, that you want melt ice creams at your celebrations that you want, you know, that you want to have a pint in your freezer when you are going to celebrate something, um, when you need a treat, when you're having a bad day, we want to be that place for, um, 
for customers and people in DFW. Yep. And so um, that's really our big goal. Um, but we would like to see our, our ice cream and grocery stores in the next five years. So it's definitely something that we're working towards. Awesome. Switching gears just a little bit. You are really good at social media, whatever that means. You have lots of followers. You're very engaging. Um, did you teach yourself social media and how impactful has uh, social media been for Melt? Um, when you are a startup with zero money, <laughs> you have to be really resourceful. And social media, I mean, five years ago, it's changed a lot, but social media then was just this free tool for me able to share what we were doing and um, having a background in photojournalism knowing the quality that quality matters um, and not selling somebody something but being able to tell a story really well and just share with people um, and then you know it evolves so much about being able to learn on that journey and then um, being able to partner with your customers through their journey and being a part of their experience and i think it's just it's been a really great tool for us to be able to just share in our customers journey and be a part of their lives and yep. Um, us to be able to share more about who we are as a company. One of the things um, that the restaurant and the service industry is a target for is a online review, good or bad. How do you think about that? And how do you handle um, negative criticism? Um, Which there's not many I've looked, so. <laughs> no, I think it's, um, you know, it's it's a it's a great tool in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's really easy. I mean, for anybody to hide behind the internet and say nasty things. Um, I think to me, more impactful if somebody had a for whatever reason a bad experience, a poor experience. If they were to email me privately, it's it's a to me they they really care. Yeah. Um, and so just posting up a, a quick review of something you don't want like to doesn't really tell me you're very invested or you care. We use um, reviews to look for trends. So um, if we're, you know, I got 10 reviews and they mentioned something that I know that our business needs to make a change on that. I think somebody in the restaurant industry told me that five years ago when I started, like don't read every review, let somebody else read them because you'll lose sleep over it. Yep. But look for the trends. And I think that was really good advice because I have lost sleep over, you know, some things that people have said on reviews and some of it's just silly. I mean, you can't, I mean, we see thousands of customers. I can't make every single person happy and I can't control every person's experience as much as I would love to. Right. Um, sometimes they come in and have a bad day and they've chosen, you know, to continue to have a bad day and um, we can't live up to their standards. Right. So how do you, um, does, does Yelp or Google give you all a chance to respond? Mm -hmm. And do you usually do that? Yes, we yeah. try to respond to almost every review that we can. Yeah, it's it's most people go to review if they're having. I wish people flocked to reviews when they had a great experience, but they usually go when they're trying to say something that is mm -hmm. negative. And uh, I watched that South Park episode. I don't know if you've ever seen it, the Yelp I've episode. Seen it. I've seen it. He's trying to get free meals everywhere and says, "If you don't pay me for, or if I don't get it for free, I'm going to Yelp and." Yeah, I mean, and, and I, that's the kind of the day and age we live in. I mean, there's also influencers that have expectations of free and complimentary items in order 
Um, but I mean, I think you just, just like anything else, you have to weigh out, like, to, does that person align with my vision and vision and are they a good partner for us? And some of them absolutely are. And then some of them are probably not best aligned with us. Yep. So, but I do, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I look at the way that people respond to reviews. Like if I was going to take my dog to a new vet or, a, you know, and, and I look at the way people respond a lot more than I look at what the reviewer said. Yep. So on James's podcast, um, my buddy James, he had a, a guest on last week and he said uh, something that I won't forget. When somebody gives you feedback, they're not telling you about uh, yourself, they're telling you something about themselves. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And it's, it's really true. Do you have a mentor or do you have lots of mentors? I would say I have lots of mentors. Yep, and it's clearly been a critical part of your journey. Yeah, I think. I've never been afraid to ask questions. And so if there's somebody that I want to learn something from, I will, you know, I will blind call them or <laughs> shoot them a LinkedIn message. And sometimes like, it's just amazing what you'll, you'll get out of just asking you and somebody a simple question. Yep. People really do want to help people. Yeah, I think so. Yep. All right. Switching gears for just a little bit. You've run a hundred mile race. And I know you probably get asked about it a bunch, but the hundred miles is what you ran, but just the fact that you were able to do it, there's so much that goes into it. First off, how did this even become something you wanted to do? Because when I think about it, I want to tear up. It sounds so hard. It is hard. I think, um, I think if you're an entrepreneur, you choose hard. I mean, I think that's what you sign up for. Um, I, needed to lose some weight. And so a, a buddy of mine had been talking about running a marathon and I'm like, I don't have the time for that. I was a runner. I've always been a runner, but it's always been like half marathons. I'd done a marathon. Um, and so I was like, fine, I'll sign up for this marathon. It'll help me, you know, get back to the shape I want to be in. And I just put out a, like a Facebook call in my neighborhood of, of runners to see who, schedules would align with mine because I had to go really early in the mornings and a guy that lives a few houses down um was a runner and we would um he would meet me and uh I would run with him and he started talking about these trail races and I was yeah. like that sounds really fun I love being outdoors my husband and I love to camp and backpack and so I was like man that sounds really really fun I was like when's the next one you're doing and he said oh I'm doing one in March called Tanejas and so I just went home and signed up for it I didn't really read about it and it was a hundred mile race. No, it was a hundred K. A hundred K. It was a hundred K. So the next day I ran with him. I said, Hey, I signed up for that race. And he goes, <laughs> wait, you did like, did you read about it? And I was like, Oh, what? Like, he was like, it's not, it's not a supported race. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? And he said, there's no volunteers. You have to figure out like your food and your hydration and like, so it's in a in a state park in Texas, and you you just run uh, sixty two miles. Um, it's kind of like signing that lease again. You just kind of signed it. Yeah, I just kind of signed it. You figure it out. I'm like, yeah. okay, well, maybe I'll need to hire a coach or something. Like, <laughs> like I've never run sixty two miles. That's crazy. And this was before I ran that marathon, and um, so it was the Dallas marathon. I ran the marathon. My husband was at the finish, and I sat down and I started crying. I was like, I signed up for this 100K and like, <laughs> that was miserable. Like, I don't know why I did that. It's gonna be, he's just like, my husband is the most calm, patient person in the, in the world. He's like, let's just, let's not worry about it right now. Just yeah. don't worry about it. And so I was like, okay. 
and I don't know how quickly you forget things, um, but I drink a few glasses of wine and I put my name in the lottery for the Leadville 100. I didn't tell anybody. Um, and I thought I'll never get in, but I thought if I'm training for a hundred K, which is 62 miles, then why not after that train for this race in August, if I got in, but I won't get in cause, cause it's super hard to get in. And I, you know, I've never tried to get in before. That's the lottery. I hope I never win. It is the lottery. I, I, I agree. <laughs> um, and so I hired a running coach and the first time I met with her, um, I hired her for the hundred K. And the first time I met with her, she said, well, whatever you do, just don't, don't run this lead belt race. And my face went white and I was like, well, I put my name in the lottery. Like, why do you say that? And then the very next week I got an email that was like, congratulations, you've been chosen, you know? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. So yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I'd read the book Born to Run, and it talks about the Leadville 100. It's one of the hardest races in the world, or was at the time the book was written. Um, and it starts at 10,000 feet in Leadville, Colorado. And it is quite challenging. It, how do you train for that? Just in, I, you don't have to go into super detail, but how do you even train for a 100 mile race? I mean, I think it's like anything, you just chip at it a little at a time. Um, like, what was the longest you would run in a practice session? Um, nine hours, which is how long? I think it was around 40 miles, 36 miles, something like that. So you never even run half of what you're going to end up running. I ran the hundred K I ran the hundred K. So it was the longest I'd run, but really it's, um, it's time on your feet. So, um, I worked up to a 95 mile week but you're you really it's back-to-back run so uh we would get up at two in the morning or three in the morning on a friday night and um go and train and run for six hours seven hours nine hours and um, then get up the next morning and run for three or four hours how are you able to manage that and work i would go really early in the morning and i re- i just didn't have a social life outside of it so i'd run i would work i would eat and sleep and then that was it well, so you ran the, the Leadville 100. Are you, is there anything even like more to do or have you conquered the world in running at this point? I don't think I've conquered the world in running. Uh, my dream race would be UTMB. It's in Italy and it, you run Italy to France and some mountain race. Um, but yeah, I'm talking with a buddy about doing the world's toughest canoe race next year. I, I'm, I don't know. We'll see. What did finishing 100 miles teach you about yourself or just about life in general? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so Leadville, just some, for some context around it, it's a it's 100 miles. It's an out and back race. In the middle of the race, um, you have to climb an almost 14,000-foot mountain um, called Hope Pass. It has a less than 50% finisher rate. So... 700 people started, I think 351 people finished this year and only 49 of them were women. And um, it's a very grueling race because the majority, it's all at 10,000 feet. So you can, it's hard to breathe. But I think it taught me that, I think just something switches in your brain that there's not anything that you can't train for. There's not any, any, but every, there's no shortcut you just like in in business i mean there's no shortcut to the finish line like right. you and even once you're to the finish line at least at the race you're at the finish line but in business there really isn't a finish line you right. just you're just you just continue to train and um i think it just taught me that 
there's so little in life that you can't train for and discipline yourself to do. And um, that if you, if you want something bad enough that you will put in the time and the prioritize it. That's incredible. Like I can't even imagine I'll uh, we're coming down the finish line right now. Um, What is, what does Fort Worth mean to you and and why has this been a place that you, uh, that you love? I know you love Fort Worth and, and as a small business owner, just like, what is it? It's a very loaded question, but like, what does Fort Worth mean to you? Yeah, I think it, um, so I'm not originally from here and I'm have been here though for the last, um, I've lived in Fort Worth for 10 years. I've lived in Texas a little bit longer and I just found my place here. And I think it's such an exciting time to live here just because so much is changing. And, but more importantly, I think there is, um, just so much room in Fort Worth for creativity and innovation. And, um, we are this big city with a small town feel. And so I think people are just hospitable and there's just a certain feeling about Fort Worth that I don't think can be replicated. Yep. And you're betting that the next 10 years will be good for Fort Worth. I think the next 10 years will be great for Fort Worth. Yeah. Small business entrepreneurship is, is on fire here. And and I think it hasn't always been for women. And Mm -hmm. I think for right now is a time where, um, as a woman, you can make a place in business and be heard. And I and don't think that's always been the case in Fort Worth. I think it has been a bit of a boys club. And um, I just think times are changing. Yeah. And there is, um, I, I think it's one of the things I care a lot about as a female business owner in Fort Worth is um, the women that have gone before me and paved the way and just expanding on that and that more women in Fort Worth can, can do bigger things and have a place in the city and have a seat at the table and, um, be able to make change happen. Have you noticed a lot more women owned businesses starting since you started? And has it been the narrative I think globally is, is, uh, is the acceptance of female entrepreneur. I mean, is, changing that narrative, but has there been anything specific to Fort Worth that has changed it? Was there a person or a Mayor Betsy Price taking the helm of the city, or um, is it just kind of the progress of the world? I think it's a combination of both. I still think that women are incredibly underfunded. Um, I mean, statistically, um, women receive less funding than um, men, um, less than 1% of VC funding goes to women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think though that the world is starting to recognize that. I don't think it's happening as fast as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that Fort Worth is ready in a lot of ways to see more women come to the table. But I can't, I, I think the M2G has done a really great job at uh, positioning themselves and um, being advocates for women, um, I really appreciate what they've done. And but there's not a lot of there's really not a lot of women in Fort Worth that yeah. have um, have pushed the needle up up to now. I mean, I can name I can probably name a handful, but I could probably name a lot more men. Mm-hmm. We we've been fortunate to put money into three companies uh, run by women and. They are very well-run businesses. People love what they're doing, and 
we continue to look for businesses that are run by women. And I hope that trend continues. But I do realize that structurally the world's been set up that we're uh, especially funding men, men are getting a lot of it, but it's changing. Yeah. 1% will turn to 2%. We'll turn to 4%. It'll keep going. Um, and it's really because of, uh, folks like you that'll continue driving that, uh, narrative. I hope so. Getting to know you the last couple of years has just been a pleasure. Getting to do this podcast with you has been a pleasure. I did not show up late to coffee, which i still feel guilty about from last time. Um, <laughs> You're killing it. Everything, this has been one of my favorite episodes. Uh, Your story is awesome. And uh, I just look forward to continuing to watch you grow. Thanks, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me. Of course, thanks for having me. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.